Please remain standing as you're able, and as we come before God's Word, we'll do so very likely as Jesus would have, reciting uh, what uh, they call the Shema, what he would later call the Great Commandment. We do it in Hebrew to remind us of our roots, and then together we join in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The scripture this morning is from Luke, the 19th chapter. It's actually a Palm Sunday scripture. Jesus has come into Jerusalem. His disciples have cheered him, and they've said that he is the king. Hosanna to the king, um, they sing. And then as we follow the story a little further, it picks up in verse 41 where it says, As Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept. If you, only you, had known what brings peace. Even now, it is hid from your eyes. The days are coming when your enemies will come upon you and will build an embankment and then they will encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and one stone will not be left upon another. Oh, because you did not recognize God when he came. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Well, it's early April, so it reminds me of that famous saying in a movie some years ago. There is no crying in baseball. Well, there may not be crying in baseball, but there's crying in the gospel of Luke. If you look at it, there's a number of people who cry in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, There is a a woman, an older woman, who's lost her only son, so she's crying during the funeral procession. Jesus sees her tears and walks over to the casket, basically, and raises her son from the dead. A little bit later, there's a very important man named Jairus, and his family is crying because they've lost their 12-year-old daughter. And in the midst of their tears... Jesus raises this child from the dead. And then, just a few days after Palm Sunday, a little bit into the future, Jesus will be on his way to the cross, and there will be women following him, and they will be crying. There's a lot of tears in Luke, but what's surprising in this morning's scripture is that the tears would come from Jesus. Because what's happened here in chapter 19 is Jesus is getting ready to come in Jerusalem and his disciples, which probably mean not just the 12, but all sorts of people who followed him, were proclaiming him as the new king. And if I'm Jesus, I'm thinking, finally, people get it. You would think it would be a wonderful moment, a moment of exhilaration, perhaps, for Jesus. But instead, he is moved to tears. Imagine that. A king or ruler crying on the very day that they are are being uh, crowned, basically. So it raises the obvious question in the scripture this morning. That is, why is Jesus crying? And the obvious answer is this. Jesus knows what's about to happen in Jerusalem. For about 40 years later, after this event, the Romans will finally get tired of all the, uh, the rebellion at the hands of the people in Jerusalem, and they will surround the town, lay siege to the town. They will end up burning the town, and they will tear the temple down stone by stone, which is pretty impressive because a lot of the stones uh, weigh 10, 20, 
or 30 metric tons apiece. Jesus knows that's coming. And you might say, well, of course he knows it. He's a prophet at the very least. He's the, the son of God. He knows what's, he knows the future. And I think, sure, you could say that. But I also want to tell you, Jesus is crying because he knows what's going to happen, not because he knows the future, because first of all, he knows the past. And in the past, he can see this. A few miles down the road from Jerusalem is a place called Lahish, L-A-C-H-I-S-H. And when the Assyrians, about 700 years earlier, had uh, come to Israel and were conquering Israel as part of their punishment for their sin, they came to a a place called Lahish. And it was pretty well fortified up on a hill. And so they built a siege ramp. And 700 years later, the siege ramp, the the embankment, was still there in Jesus' day. Now, how can I be sure? Because it's still there today, 28 centuries later, you go to the group to visit Lahish, you find this huge mound of dirt, this ramp that leads up to the city. So Jesus knew the past, and and he also knew that about 600 years earlier, the Babylonians had surrounded Jerusalem and had finally marched into Jerusalem after they laid siege to Jerusalem and had torched the place and had torn the first temple built by Solomon down as well. So Jesus knew the past and knew these things could happen. But more importantly, I think Jesus knew the present. And in the present, when he came upon Jerusalem, there were two things that were kind of notable about them. Number one is they thought the Romans were their problem. They thought the Romans were their problem. I think Jesus thought they had other problems beside the Romans. And so they blamed everything on the occupying force. They blamed all their ills, their problems, their their difficulties uh, were blamed on the occupying forces. And one of the things Jesus could know by looking at the present, which is anytime you have to blame someone else for your ills, it's likely that you're going to be in trouble because you're not going to get to the real source of the problem. Uh, the father of uh, modern non-directive counseling was a guy named Carl Rogers. And, and about 50 years ago, he made this statement. He said, the only person who can't be helped by counseling is a person that continues to blame someone else for their problems. So Jesus could look at Jerusalem and know they're not getting any better because they think the problem is Rome. And then the other thing that was notable about them is they thought what they needed to do to deal with the Romans was to get themselves a king and have an armed revolt and have a violent overthrow of the Roman Empire. And Jesus could have told you that violent overthrows are not, that's not the kind of revolution that is needed and that's going to solve their problems. What's needed is a revolution in their heart. And if we wondered about what God thinks about violence, think about this. The Romans decided they could solve everything by violence. That's how you get a Pax Romana is by getting everybody to be subjugated to you. And uh, what they decided to do about their problem, which they thought was Jesus, was they violently dealt with him, and they hung him on a cross. Well, what happened? That just opened up his movement to go on, uh, not just in Jerusalem, but all over the world, uh, forever in a sense. God's verdict on violence is, okay, let's see if it works. Guess what? It doesn't. So Jesus can look out on the city, and he knows what's going to happen, not because he's a fortune teller, but because it's very obvious that they, they are uh, struggling, they're making mistakes, and they're blaming the Romans for all their mistakes, and they figure if they could just violently overthrow the Romans, life would be good. So he knows there's a problem. The second reason Jesus is crying, I think, is this. Since he knows that they're going to fall, um, and it will be in just 40 years, that hurts him. Because he knows what it looks like 
when people fall to an empire, when they finally had enough of you, they will come through and they will clean house and they will burn everything that is standing until it no longer stands. And so what's interesting is Jesus is crying over these people because he cares about them. You know, if I were Jesus, I'd say, well, look, I told you so. You're going to be in trouble because you didn't listen to me. But that's not his attitude. It's like, you didn't listen to me. It breaks my heart. Look what's going to happen to you. One of the interesting things that uh, Pastor Donna pointed out to me was that if you look at the Gospel of Luke, right at the start, it starts with God visiting, God trying to send people a message. So angels come to visit Zechariah. And Zechariah doesn't really believe God's message. So remember, he's struck dumb and he you know, can't speak for a while. And then there are several times through the book of Luke where it looks like God's coming to visit Jesus, but they just don't get it. And for Jesus, that's heartbreaking because he knows what's going to happen and it's not going to be good. He cares about the people that he's crying over. Me, I would just say, well, you got what you deserve. I, I told you, but you wouldn't listen. It is interesting that on that very same spot, more or less, the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, uh, a king named David a thousand years earlier stood in the same spot and cried. And he cried because he had to leave Jerusalem because his son was trying to overthrow him in a revolt. And he cried not just because he was in, uh, in, uh, in danger of losing his power. He, he cried because he knew that this revolt would not help his kingdom. And he knew that in the revolt he would come face to face against his very own son. He cried because he cared. And Jesus cared about these folks. Uh, another famous person that cried was Jeremiah. When the Babylonians surrounded the city, Jeremiah knew what was next. And he went to the gates of the city, which is kind of like the public area, And he cried because he knew what would happen. Prophets cry, not just because they know what's going to happen. Prophets cry because they care about the people that it's going to happen to. I think that's real important for us to know because in in our day, a person considers himself prophetic uh, if they can point out what other people are doing wrong and bash them about it. Here's what's wrong with America or here's what's wrong with this denomination or here's what's wrong with this class of people. And they call themselves prophetic. In my experience, they're just angry. They're just mean-spirited. Because if there's anything true of the prophets in the Bible, it's that they care about the people uh, with whom they're speaking or to whom they're speaking. Even though they have to bring a bad news to them, it breaks their heart to do it. There was a, a great rabbi, his name is Abraham Joshua Hessel. In the 1930s, he wrote his dissertation in Nazi Germany on the Old Testament prophets. And this is what he concluded. He said this, he said, a prophet in the Bible is most recognizable by the fact that they have deep compassion or pathos for their people. It hurts them to see what's going to happen. It hurts them to say what's going to happen. More than anything else, a prophet in the Bible is someone who cares. It reminds me of a a story um, a a pastor friend of mine years ago used to tell. It's about a small town. They had a Methodist church and another church. Well, the other church got a new pastor. So one of the members of that other church said to a Methodist friend, I want you to come to our church this Sunday and hear our new preacher. So the Methodist said, sure. So he went. And when the service was over, uh, the guy from the other church said to the Methodist, well, what did you think? How did you like him? And he said, well, pardon me if I'm wrong, but didn't he just tell you you were going to hell? Yeah, the guy said. And he said, well, didn't you tell me that's why you didn't like the earlier preachers? Because he was always telling you you were going to hell. And, and the man said to the Methodist, oh, yeah, yeah. But the other guy always acted like he was glad about it. You know, a prophet is not glad 
If someone with great glee points out what is wrong with our country, our church, our people, they're not a prophet. They're not a prophet. They're just mean and angry. A prophet more than anything else cares, and Jesus cares. These people deserve what's going to happen to them at some level, Jesus could say. But he didn't. Instead, his heart broke for them. Jesus cares. And Jesus cries because he does care. But I think also this, there's something interesting about Jesus crying. He cries on the same spot David did. He cries uh, near where Jeremiah cried. Another prophet named Nehemiah cries over Jerusalem. Basically, uh, there's a form of uh, crying in the Bible that's called a lament. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations. And in a lament, a prophet will cry out to God about all the terrible things that are going on and how it's not right and how it's not fair. And I think that's what Jesus is doing. It's not like he's crying out that saying, y'all are terrible, you're going to hell. Part of what he's doing is he's crying out and he's saying, God, why does this have to happen to this city? Perhaps the most famous lament in the New Testament is when Jesus hangs on the cross and what does he say? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. That's a lament. When you cry to God when it's not fair, you cry to God when a church buzz is hit head on on a highway. You cry to God when flood wipes out an entire town. You cry to God when someone you love gets cancer. And it's appropriate to cry out to say, God, this isn't right. God, this shouldn't be like this. God, these people have made a mistake, but they shouldn't be eliminated by the Romans. You cry out. That's what they do. And it's called lament. And the one reason you cry out in a lament is not just because you're upset and angry, though that's understandable. You cry out because you think it matters to God or you wouldn't bother crying out in the first place. They cry out to God because they know God cares about people and God cares about this world. And so that, that's what a lament is to say, God, I know this matters to you, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cry about it. There's a fairly famous book written a couple decades ago. It was called Lament for a Son. It was written by a professor at Yale named Nicholas Waltersdorf. His son was climbing the Alps and died in a mountain climbing accident. And in the course of the book, um, this is what Volterstorff, a, a theologian, says. He says, in the Older Testament, one of the things that they say is you can't look upon God's face and live. I don't know if you've ever seen that. That's what God tells Moses. And most people believe that that's because God is so radiant, so full of wonder, so, so bright with, with beauty that you just couldn't stand it. Maybe that's true. But this is what Volterstorff said. I wonder if it's this. I wonder if because the face of God contains all the pain and all the tears of all these people that he has loved over the years. He said, I wonder if the the glory of God is not God's perfection and God's beauty, but I wonder if the glory of God is his sadness. I wonder if it's that no one could look on a face that's held that much pain and live to tell about it. It's interesting, but it makes the point that we cry to God because we know it matters to God and God cares about tragedy and God cares about cancer and God cares about sin and violence. And so we cry out. Reminds me, one of the, um, the uh, illustrations that rabbis will use to describe their relationship with, is, with God is this. They say it's like a married couple 
having an argument in the kitchen, and the argument's pretty intense, and they're throwing dishes at each other. But nobody leaves the kitchen. Nobody runs home to mother. Nobody walks out to go get a six-pack. They stay in that. And what you have in the Bible, often in the Psalms or in Job or in Lamentations, is you have God and God's prophets staying in there, throwing the dishes, because they know that each one, the other, cares. And so they stay in there. And that's called a lament. It matters to you, God. It matters to me. So I'm going to cry. And I think lament is important because a lament helps us begin to move through our grief. And one of the things that happens in grief is if you get stuck in grief, then you're not open to what, uh, what God may yet be doing or what may new come into your life. And I think a lot of people believe that staying in grief is honoring the person who's lost or the dream that's lost or the thing that's lost. And they think that's the most honoring thing they can do is stay stuck in the grief. When in actuality, the most honoring thing you can do is grieve, lament, cry hard, cry well, cry often, and start to move forward. Donna Bellamy preached last Sunday, was talking about Queen Victoria, and, and, and of course a lot of us have an interest now in Queen Victoria and Prince Albert uh, because of the series. But one of the things that she pointed out uh, that is said is that when Prince Albert died at much too early an age, Queen Victoria's response was to dress in mourning every day for the rest of her life, apparently, and to lay out Prince Albert's clothes every day, pressed and fresh and ready to wear. The press called her the the widow of Windsor. For the longest time, she wouldn't leave the house. She wouldn't really govern or connect with her people. Finally, on, on some good advice, after years and years, she began to move out again. But the same kind of thing can happen to us. We can get stuck in our grief and miss what God may yet be holding out for us. There's an interesting character in the Bible. His name is Jacob. I mean, Jacob knows God pretty well because they wrestled. Um, And of course, Jacob's the one that saw this ladder that goes up into heaven. But Jacob had 12 sons. Ten of them turned against the second youngest. His name was Joseph. And they sold him as a slave, but dipped his robe in blood and brought it back to their father, Jacob. And they said, look, see, it looks like your son is dead. And the father went into very deep grief. He was inconsolable. It was so bad, even the sons were surprised. He said, I'm going to go down to my grave grieving. I'll never stop, basically, he told the kids. And Jacob couldn't move forward. One of the interesting things the rabbis ask is, why did God never tell Jacob, oh, by the way, your son's alive and he's in Egypt? Why was it 13 years till Joseph got to the throne and then several years later before word got back to Jacob that Joseph was still alive? Well, the rabbi, it's not in the Bible, but the rabbis have a very interesting answer to me. They said the reason Jacob didn't know that his own son was still alive was that God was trying to tell him, but his grief was so heavy that he could not hear God's voice. Grief can do that to us. And the thing about a lament is it helps us grieve to cry out loud, to cry out hard, to cry out often, so that we can move forward to see what God may yet be doing. It doesn't mean what we lost is any less important. We grieve and lament because it was important. There's no crying in baseball, but there is crying in our faith.